iPad, iPhone, electronic device, or old-fashioned paper. Uh, be turning to Matthew. Um, it was when I was about 12, my brother got a Rubik's Cube for Christmas. I could never do it. And my very practical brother, within a few days of having his Rubik's Cube, had learnt. But because I was always a bit envious of my brother, and probably vice versa, I would never bring myself to ask him to show me sibling rivalry. In, uh, in Hyderabad, when we went with the youth team this summer, uh, one of the girls had brought a Rubik's Cube, but we'd forbidden taking iPods and phones and things, so that she had to do something with her hands, you know, not doing all this business. And uh, she, she brought a Rubik's Cube, and I didn't really know why she brought it, because she could do it in about four minutes. And part of the thing on this bus journey was she'd take the Rubik's Cube and pass it to someone and say, mix it up. And kind of the start of it, I always go, oh, we're going to mix it up really, really well. And within three or four minutes, bang, it was there, all the sides done. And I thought, this is a bit dull, you know how to do it. But everyone on the bus except me, because I've given up on Rubik's Cubes because they're beyond me uh, and I'm stubborn, everyone on the bus was kind of captivated by this sense of, you're an expert, how do you do this? It's flummoxed me for years. She was at Bidford, if you want to know who she is, you can ask me later. Uh, but I noticed that uh, by the end of the trip, we went to a hypermarket in Hyderabad and we were doing some shopping and quite a few of the boys were in awe of the girl and they bought their own Rubik's Cube and she had sessions for them <laughs> to teach them how to do it. I could see the parents smiling, they know who they are, some of them. But that's, I was there thinking about that and thinking, isn't that the way, when you see someone who's really good at something, uh, you begin to notice and think, Wow, that's amazing. I really like, I really like to know how they do that. How it just is so natural. How it is that it's just so easy. And so there was a sense of teach me. And there was a showing and it took time. And then there was, I don't really know how to do this. How, you know, I've got stuck. I can't remember. All the time, coming back, coming back, asking, show me, help me. And the expert, this 17-year-old girl, Give me, Lord. Uh, she, uh, <laughs> she was able, no matter what they'd done, to direct them, to show them how to do it. Jesus spent so much of his time with his disciples that they began to cotton on to something, or many things. But in Luke, in chapter 11, and where we're going to in Matthew chapter 6, there comes a point where the disciples are with Jesus and they see something that they desire to be able to do. They see in Jesus something they're like, he's an expert at this, let's show us. They say, teach us to pray. And they know that he's the expert, he's the one who they've seen it being modeled by, they've seen that he's the one who it seems to come naturally to. They've tried and they've struggled, they've been to, to seeing different ways and modes in, in their life, in the temple and in the synagogues, but for Jesus it just seems that he's the expert, he's got it. And they say, teach us to pray. That's how Luke phrases it in chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 6, we get it in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, and you may think, well... They're not, asking us to, they're not asking Jesus to teach us how to pray. He's telling them 
Well, I refer you to Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2, that Jesus is up on the mountainside, and he sits down, and Matt's trying to keep up with what I'm doing. It's all right, you're going to be there in a minute. In, uh, earlier on in Matthew 5, he, he says on the mountain, he sits down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, and chapter 5, 6, and 7 are what is called the Sermon on the Mount, or the teaching, the manifesto of the kingdom, the declaration of what this being the people of God is about. Some of it's very earthy, some of it's very practical to do with anger and, and lust of what we do with our eyes, how we forgive people, what we do with our money. It's about who is blessed. It's about the kingdom, who is wise and who is foolish. And if part of that is this praying, teaches to pray. In our vision series, in our time together, we've been, we've been thinking and working through, it's over here this week, of proclaiming Jesus to people today. 2013, we want to see more people come to faith. It's so imperative. It really is as we, we take the time, make the opportunity to invite and witness. There are so many people who do not, not yet know Jesus. And as, as we seek to grow as disciples and those who become Christians through Alpha or whatever means, we want to encourage them and, and disciple them and disciple ourselves. And we've been thinking about building God's kingdom in many ways. All this is part and parcel of being the people of God, citizens of a heavenly and earthly kingdom. But we're also wanting to pray for revival. and We'll be exploring that somewhat. But praying, teachers to pray. So let's read what Jesus has to say in chapter 6, verses 5. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Should we read this together? Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When I first read that, I thought, where's the ending? Yours be the glory and all that. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. I could, as I've often done, read some biographies of, of great Christian leaders great inspirational heroes of the faith. I could recount their story and tell you how earnestly they prayed at what dark time they would get up in the morning. 
and how long they would pray for and how many hours they would set aside in the day and tell you what amazing things they saw God do. And I guess that would inspire us. But I sometimes read those and I, I, I find myself thinking, I'm not there. It inspires me, but I think they're so far away that I end up feeling discouraged and guilty and thinking that's what I should be, but I'm not, and I don't know how to get there. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't the disciples came to Jesus and said, you've spent so many nights on the hillside on your own. Oh, gosh, you must be an epic prayer. They come to him and say, teach us to be like you. He didn't set the goal so far away and with so kind of, it was unreachable. But he, they saw in Jesus something that was within their grasp, something that they could learn, something that they could do. Because Jesus, as the Son of God, was also fully a human being. And as such, that encourages us that he was one of us, like us, and shows us that this relationship with the Father is possible. Is good. Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer, and it wasn't dull. It wasn't one of those calls to a prayer meeting. You think, oh dear, sit around in a circle with our head in the hands for an hour. Not at all. Prayer for Jesus, and prayer as the disciples observed, was something so attractive and vibrant. Teachers, they said. And first he says, don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by people. Don't be like the hypocrites. What are hypocrites? Well, the, the, Jesus is kind of amazing in, in that what he, he observes culture. He knows the culture that he's in. And this word hypocrite is kind of like a transliteration of a Greek word. Amazing that. And it, it kind of me, it referred to people who were on the stage, people who were interacting and they would be some sort of a facade. An actor puts on a show, don't they? It's not really the person, whoever your famous Hollywood film star I, uh, idol is, Judy Dench, or uh, you can show what sort of films I'm into now, or uh, <laughs> Daniel Craig, or the, Elijah Wood, trying to be cross-spectrum here. That's not the real person, the character they portray that it's a mask, that it's a facade. And that word that was used for actors began to be used in the culture for people who would practice deceit. Now, it's really interesting. People kind of always say, oh, the church is full of hypocrites. Well, actually, there's a little adage, isn't there? You know, why, I'm not coming because the church is full of hypocrites. We say, well, why not? You know, are you not a hypocrite too? We're all the same. But the point I want to make is this. Jesus, actually, in, in this time, in this place, takes that word of hypocrite, and he uses it 17 times in the Gospels. In very little other places was this word used. And actually, his sense of this word hypocrite has become part of our modern vocabulary in the Western world because of his strong emphasis upon the moral significance of the heart, not the facade. What I'm saying is this. Why we talk about hypocrites is because Jesus took that phrase and applied it to behavior, to morals, to living. 
and said, what we do in public must match up with what we do in private. Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like the pagans. Don't be like those hypocrites who do it for show, to be seen, the outward, the facade, the act, the veneer. God looks at the heart. So when he's talking about prayer, it's really important to to grasp that it's our heart that matters. And he says, go into private. Now, I've heard sometimes when I was a new Christian, people saying, we shouldn't have prayer meetings in church. We should all go and find our closets and, uh, and get in them, shut the door, light a little candle, and then we can pray earnestly. And other people have said, well, clearly Jesus is teaching us that any sort of public prayer meeting, any sort of praying that is involving other people, you've received the reward. Actually, true prayer is that which is done secretly. Well, I don't agree. That's what happens when you wrench a scripture, when you wrench a scripture out of its, the rest of the Bible. Doesn't Paul teach about how with, with prayers and petitions and thanksgiving, present your requests to God? Doesn't it seem to be that when Jesus is teaching this, he's not just teaching the individual who reads this so much with a Western mindset. He's actually teaching the people of God. When you pray, it's for us. I've heard others say, this teaching is about, that we've prayed it, that's the only prayer that you should pray. If Jesus says, teach, you know, we ask him, Jesus teaches to pray, and uh, this is the words, these are the words that he gives us. Well, that's the prayer we should pray, full stop. No more should we have extempore prayer where we just pray what's on our heart. This is the prayer that's been given. This then is how you should pray. People take it like that. A bit crackers, I think. It seems to be that Jesus has lots of prayers. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, and he doesn't use these specific words. He's just praying to his Father, doesn't he? But there's something about this prayer, there's something about what he's teaching here that kind of captures the essence for us. In this question of teach us to pray, Jesus, we want to relate to God, our Father, just as we see you doing. And out of that relationship, out of that place, all that we've begun to see you doing, all the wisdom in discerning how to live life, all that ability to speak of God and to, to have insight into people's lives, to pray for the sick and for them to get better, to see the kingdom come. Teach us. Please, please. Well, just a few little words as we begin to think about praying. It's important that as we pray in verse 5, when you pray, please do pray. Please do pray. Not as you can't, but as you can. I'm not saying you've got to spend an hour, but I am asking you to pray. Many of you will be faithful in prayer, and you may think, yeah, that's okay, I've got to do an hour, just like that. There'll be some here. Keep praying. But for others, that, that commitment to, to pray has waned, that it's just kind of got crowded out or forgotten, it's become dry and stilted, it's just kind of got left on the back burner. Maybe it was simmering and it's going cold. In this new year, let's ignite that commitment that desire to pray, not because I'm ordering you to, but because as we see Jesus, it was his life, one of the kind of the, the heartbeat, the drumbeat, the characterization of his life as a follower of God, that the disciples said, teach us. 
And I pray for myself and, and for this church this year. Teach us to pray. Not that we're undoing all we've learned, but to teach us yet more. To draw us on. So when you pray, but don't, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't see it as, you know, you've got to be seen to get your reward. Don't fall into that trap. You see, if we just do it for show, for pretend, our ego swells and our soul shrivels. When we pray, remember the audience is for one. We pray for an audience of one. And there's something about, Jesus says, go into your closet, go into that private place, do this quietly, unseen, just with your father. That will really start to search and grow and develop. I'm not saying we shouldn't gather to pray. Yes, we must. Yes, we, we need to. Because we know that prayer is that, that relationship, that expression of our desire and hopes, our, our yearning to know him and his purposes. That we do that as a church. We set aside a time every month on a Monday evening, once a month, hungry to come together for an hour to seek him. That's not the only time we pray. But in praying, in learning and growing in our relationship with God, it helps us when we come together. It helps you to grow. You know, so often I've heard, and I remember this myself when I'd become a new Christian, people said, I can't pray out loud. What will people think? You ever said that? You know, we have that, that time in church sometimes where we just give space for people to pray. And, and it's great that people pray out loud, but it's not everyone, is it? Because I guess you're thinking, oh, I might say something stupid. I might open my mouth and my tongue will flap madly. I don't know what can, or those really spiritual people will be like jotting down my theological prayers. <laughs> Do you think that? There's many things that constrain the tongue. And part of it is, is actually what Jesus is speaking against. Don't pray and worry about other people. I can assure you that we don't take records of your prayers. I could assure you we're not kind of saying, oh, we thought they were spiritual, but they've opened their mouth now and put their foot in it. You see, I, know, I knew this from myself, that actually I was kind of doing precisely what Jesus was saying. I wasn't praying with the audience of one, of my father. I was much more aware of others. Was I going to say the right thing? What would people think of me? Would they think I've done prayed well? I can't pray as long as those people who pray at the front. That's okay. That's okay. Because you're expressing yourself to your father, not trying to impress us. Praying out loud just helps us join in with praying and saying amen. There's nothing more exciting as, uh, as, as a leader and someone who loves seeing people grow in faith as hearing people pray out loud for the first time. When Phil leads after Alfred, it's so brilliant. He, like, he, one of the things, I'm allowed to say this, one of the things he, he really encourages is, people, is after Alpha, people become Christians, have to pray out loud for the first time. And, and we kind of really encourage people to do it sooner rather than later because the longer you leave it, the harder it becomes. 
And like, it's great on week one or two, Phil says to me, let's pray it out loud. Because <laughs> it's actually a really big hurdle. Because it's actually saying, I trust you. I'm not embarrassed in front of my brothers and sisters. We pray for an easy, uh, we pray for an audience of one. Don't babble. Don't babble. What's Jesus trying to say? Is he trying to say, if you pray the same prayer twice, you're babbling? What he's trying to contradict is, is thinking that this kind of mechanistic view of praying that says, the more I pray, the more God will have to hear me. You know, if I keep on keeping on like a nagging partner, I avoided pitfall there, didn't I? Uh, like a nagging person, then, then eventually they're just going to go, oh, for goodness sake, all right. Or there's a view in the kind of the, the, the Gentile or the pagan realm, and I saw it when I, I went to, to Nepal, and as you walk around Nepal, everywhere there are prayer flags and prayer wheels, and you had to do certain things. Like as you're walking along, there's a rock, and it's painted, and there's prayer wheels, and you're meant to tur- go around it a particular way, and as you go around it, you're meant to spin the wheel a particular way, because in doing so, it would pray for you on your behalf, and the prayer flags would flutter in the wind, and, and they'd be praying for you, uh, you know, even though you weren't thinking about it, but the wind was praying for you, and I even saw, most ingeniously, they got like this prayer wheel that they'd rigged up to a stream, so, like a little water wheel, so as the stream flowed, it would turn the wheel on their behalf, the household, what a great wheeze that is, we'd have to pray our prayer wheels doing it. And it's kind of putting out this prayer somewhere to this force, to this thing that might hear me and might condone to answer. That's not what Christian prayer is. That's a travesty. That's mechanistic to say the weight of prayer. If we can kind of tip the balance, then we'll get what we want. Or if we can pray earnestly and and cajole and knock on heaven's door such that God goes, oh, for goodness sake, I'll say, yes, shut up. No. Nor is it that you know, you find the right formula, that there's this idea that if we can just say the right words, my Father who is in heaven, in the name of Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, and the precious, and we kind of add all this, this stuff that we think, if we just get the right form, the right fix, the right place, then it will be all right, then God will hear, kind of go, ah, oh, I can hear you because you've done the right thing, the right ritual. Jesus saying, no, 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 no. No, no, no. It's about relationship. I was with some friends, and they have a seven-year-old little girl, and they're eager for her first words. At the moment, it's b. She might say bike because her dad rides quite a lot. They're, they're, they're having kind of a like, oh, is it going to be dada or mama? It's b at the moment is the phrase she's saying. But they're eager every day, seven months. You know, what, when's it going to be? When's it going to be that first word? And that's the heart of God that says, as we become his children, eager for that first word, eager for that calling out, eager for that relationship to be begun in communicating. It's not that she's got to say her first word of, dear mama and papa, I would like some ketchup with my cheese on toast, please. And only then, no. In that teachers of that relationship. 
Jesus teaches us in a model to pray and says, Our Father. It's called the Lord's Prayer or Our Father or more appropriately, the Disciples' Prayer. When it's the Lord's Prayer, we think, well, it's His, it's not ours. Call it the Disciples' Prayer. Uh, As a little bit of light relief, I've got a little bit of a film clip for you. It's about prayer. Who's seen the film Bruce Almighty? Ah, you're all going, ah, good. This is the little bit. Bruce, if you don't know the film, there's this character played by Jim Carrey who moans and everything's going badly and God is played by um, Morgan Freeman. There he is. And God's kind of, it's not really theologically sound in many ways, but it's interesting. God's kind of saying, I just want to break. And Jim Carrey's moaned and said, oh, I could do a better job. And God says, well, okay, you can. And so this is the bit where he's, he's saying, it's harder than I thought being God. And Morgan Freeman is just saying to him, right, you need to, you've ignored all the people praying. Well, you took the job, Bruce, so I suggest you get to it. Prayers, prayers, okay, prayers. Uh, this creepy whisper thing has to change. Organization and management, that's what I need. I need a system, something concrete. Concentrate. Files. Let all prayers be organized into files. Well, that takes care of the voices. Not exactly a space saver, though. Grace might notice. I know. Prayer post-its! Something with a lock. Security combination. A password. A password. Yo! You've got prayers. Welcome to the Revelation Superhighway. We bless. No mess. Downloading now. It's <laughs> good. It's good. This is gonna take a while. prayer requests. I better manifest some coffee. Hola! Juan Valdez! Buenos días. Buenos días. Disfruta un buen café. Gracias, señor. Adiós. Adiós! Now that's fresh mountain-grown coffee from the hills of Colombia.
<laughs> yeah. There you go. There we go. In some ways, it captures something important. In other ways, it plays into kind of a mindset. Jesus says, in answer to the question, teach us to pray. He says, don't, don't do it for show, don't babble. But when you pray, pray our Father who is in heaven. What that film caricatures is, is the kind of mindset that we have is that God's kind of distant. That, you know, you just send them off the like post-its or a file somewhere or God's kind of, oh, not again. No. God loves it when we pray. And he's listening. We sung it in a song. Who, are, who am I that you are thinking of me? You're mindful when I call. And the other thing that just troubles us before we, we come to communion is, is there's something about our Father who is who art in heaven. That our Western mindset kind of has this idea of heavens of being away, out there, somewhere. God is distant. And that's a complete misunderstanding of what Jesus is signaling. Our Father means we're not just talking to a God and having to find a form of words, just like my friends and their little child, waiting, eager for the first word, that first utterance of that communication. It's like God saying, come on, my child, talk to me. It's what you were made for. And when Jesus says, our Father who is in heaven, It doesn't mean God who's somewhere remote and abstract or in that concept of, oh gosh, it's Father and he's going to be dis, you know, upset with what I've done and he's far away. Actually, what Jesus is saying when he talks about in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, rather than saying it's distant, he's saying God is always near us. Our Father always hears us. Our Father, who is in heaven, is not saying, well, it's kind of got to go on an email somewhere out there. But it's saying the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is at hand, it's close by, and so is our Father. That as we pray, as we begin to learn and grow in this and develop and seek God, our Father, who is in heaven, he is near, he is close at hand. Think about it. Think about when you pray and you sit down. Do you kind of think, oh, it's bouncing off the ceiling? Or do you think, he's here with me, <coughs> listening to my cry? Our Father in heaven is full of grace. You know, it's our fear and our unwillingness and our reticence and our sense that we're unworthy that thinks, well, who, who is he to listen to me? Well, maybe if it was up to us, that would be the situation, but it's up to him. And Jesus says, pray, Father, our Father. Yes, he's in heaven in the rule and reign of God, but that rule and reign of God is here. A Father who is always near us. Close your eyes. Our Father 
who is in heaven means our Father who is always near. <coughs> Teach us to pray. We've just celebrated, haven't we? Christmas, God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus comes into our living. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And they beheld the glory of God. And Jesus says, God with us says, our Father who is near us. The other thing the film doesn't quite capture, but I'll forgive it, is that it just sees prayer as requests. All those requests, what he says, all those whingings. Of course we can bring our requests to God. Surely we can. But our Father... That abiding, that dwelling, that speaking, that, that way of saying, hi, the matter of the heart. Understanding who you are, who we are, and what you're doing. Teach us, Lord, to pray. In the context of the love that Jesus showed and the spirit of forgiveness that this prayer speaks of, the very basics of our relationship with God, our Father, who is always near us. Brothers and sisters, we pray together, give us this day our daily bread. And he heard us. And we share bread and wine. And we remember that this meal signifies forgiveness wrought at cost. But says we are freed, we are forgiven. We are made at peace with God and with one another. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Paul speaks of it in, in his letter in Corinthians. He says, if you're out of relationship with someone, put it right. Holy Spirit, help us in the start of this new year. Leaders continuing in unity even though forgiveness is tough, yet it's what marks us <coughs> and feed us even now, strengthen us, build us. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>